Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. I'm your host Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today I'm joined by Craig Fletcher. I met Craig as a customer and worked alongside him and the team at Multiplay when I was at Pier 1. I was in Southampton with Pier 1, setting up and running the UK part of the business, and Multiplay were located, still are located, I think, over the water, over Southampton Water at Hythe. We helped Craig and the team build out a global infrastructure at Multiplay and hosted them at Pier 1. Craig sold the business to Game, in 2015 for 20 million and since then he's become an investor in another a number of other gaming startups so today we'll talk about his growth journey the time he spent at multiplay the multiple businesses that they set up and ran including insomnia the uk's largest participative gaming event the rise of esports on which i think he's a worldwide expert and all things related to gaming and gaming business and things I don't know anything about. I'm not I'm not a gamer. I haven't spent my time playing video games at all. So absolutely fascinating to go with Craig on his journey from 1997 to 2015 and his exit, what he's done since at game and then what he's been doing since he left. So let's get on with the conversation with Craig Fletcher. My name's Craig Fletcher. I'm the founder and former chief exec of Multiplay, which was, and still is, a video games industry events and online services company. It's since been split. Um, There's the events business that sits within uh, the high street retailer game in the UK, the video game specialist. And there's the online hosting part, which does worldwide game server hosting that now sits within Unity, which is a global game engine and uh, gaming services company. So Yes, built up over many years, was built organically with really no funding, started out as a passion play because I love video games and always did from an early age. Did my sort of first video games event when I was 15 in the Hotel Ibis in Southampton with 20 PCs and some coax cable, people coming from all over the country to play networked video games. Sounds incredibly sad. <laughs> it was for the hardcore back then. But then fast forward sort of two decades and many venue moves. The event is now a festival of all things video games at uh, the NEC, attracting around 80,000 visitors with a temporary network of around 3,000 PCs. And the uh, online gaming section is now present in about 25 different countries hosting some of the biggest video game titles in the world and with tens of thousands of servers online. So it's uh, moved a long way, but since leaving uh, my uh, 
time at, uh, at the company. I've, I now focus on being a business angel, investing in companies, particularly in the creative sector and technology sector, but we'll go broader than that, and just helping people understand the video games industry because people don't even realize it's an industry these days. Yet It's one of the fastest growing industries on the planet, um, about $110 billion last year. And the rise of esports and competitive gaming, which I've been doing for 23 years, and the fact that people watch other people play video games, which is an alien concept to many. <laughs> and it was bad enough 15 years ago that we played video games. Now we watch other people play video games. So there's another another stage where we're going through there. So there you go. There's the not so quick intro. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. And so you started the business. You did your first event at 15 and then you went sort of left school and straight into work. No, I didn't go straight into work. So I actually went off to um, college. I was running this alongside and I always wanted to go into um, into medicine. That was my lifelong goal when I was from a small child. Um, so I basically um, I went off to medical school, did four years of medical school whilst the company was growing along the side. I was, there were some hilarious situations where I would, for example, fly south. So I went to the University of Edinburgh, which is quite away from where I lived in Southampton. Fly south, set up an event go back to the airport, fly back to Edinburgh, sit a clinical exam Friday morning, get back to the airport, fly back, run the event for the weekend, and then go back. It got a bit silly. And so then in the end, after doing four years of medical school, I decided, right, this company's growing. I need to make a decision. Let's move forward. Um, so yeah, much to my parents' uh, disdain at the time, I, uh, <laughs> I quit med school to do this full time. But it worked out in the end. If you'd stayed in medicine, what would you have specialised in, do you think? It's a hard yeah. one to answer because you, once you qualify, you then go basically and do the rounds of a few, um, a few different areas. I'm not sure whether I'd have gone, I probably would have gone into the medical side rather than the surgical side, I think. But I, I just don't know. It, until you literally go and really get a proper taste work. I mean, I did get a bit of clinical um, where I saw a few of the specialties, but you really need to do the proper rounds to make that happen. Fab. And so four years of ridiculousness because you even you picked a degree that was full-time it was absolutely crazy I mean I was basically running an event because then it was just an events business so I was running an events business in my spare time what little spare time you get at medical school but luckily I did the old course and it's very different these days where it was the first three years of a medical degree back then were pure lecture based so I basically may have may have skipped a few lectures and just caught up from the notes later on in the evening and things like that. But I got through because the events really were quite sporadic. You know, there was four events a year, big events a year. So it was all right because they, they would peak and then trough. And so that was the way, the way I could do it, but uh, just to balance the two. But it really came to a crunch point in fourth year where you're actually pretty much a junior doctor by then, just not being paid. You're doing long hours on the wards as a student um, with no real responsibility other than sort of taking bloods and doing histories and things like that. But um, you end up being posted out to different hospitals. So I was like in the borders of Scotland for six weeks, staying in accommodation. Then I was in posted to Fife and it really became a crunch time. It's like I was just out of contact for four weeks at a time. So I had to make a decision. Are you going to do the business or are you going to go into medicine? And it became quite the crunch point. What was your turnover at that point when you said, OK, there's a time thing? Did you have a turnover at that point or was there a turnover that you could see if you did it full time? There was a turnover I could see, but it, was, it wasn't a big turnover back then. I mean, for many years, everything that we made was reinvested into the company. And certainly for the first year after I went full time, I didn't take a salary. I mean, I was living at home with parents, so they were lucky to support me then. And then I think for a number of years, I think I took the absolute bare, I think I took a 12K salary. 
um, the absolute bare minimum that I could get away with. And then everything else the company made was reinvested because we actually needed to buy a lot of hardware because running these big network gaming events, I remember the first network switch I bought was like 1,200 pounds. These days, they're 20 quid on Amazon. <laughs> you know, it's, it was a very different world back then. All the money that was made was basically reinvested into servers, network infrastructure, event infrastructure to keep the events growing. And that was how we did it. And we did a bit of work for hire. I mean, I actually ran, in order to pay the bills, I actually ran an, an IT consultancy on the side alongside Multiplay for many years, unfortunately named Tsunami Interactive Limited, which was soon <laughs> dropped after the unfortunate events of 2006. I think I'll get the year right. And uh, that did network installations, did IT consultancy, did systems advisory, that sort of stuff. So I basically paid most of my salary from that company while investing everything I could into the growth of the events business. I saw the opportunity. I wouldn't ever advise other business people to do this, but I didn't have a number in mind. I didn't have a detailed cash flow P&L like I would do these days. I literally just had a vision and a set of ideas and thinking, this could be big. Let's go for it. And that was the drive. And then how did the business evolve from there? So you had the events business, which is carried on growing and continues to grow under games ownership. Yes. You added some other... It wasn't even a company until 97. So I was running events from around 94, 95. It became a company in 97. Did the first Insomnia Gaming Festival, which is the big one that continues today, in March 1999. And then we launched the online hosting side with a couple of servers in Telehouse in London in 2002. And those two servers, I think I had Medal of Honor and some Call of Duty servers on, like the original versions when the games first came out. And then it grew from there. What actually was really good about those two businesses is because the events business is very cyclical. It's like you get a lot of money in for an event and then there's a trough for months before your next event comes along because it was predominantly B2C at that point. And then you build up this other B2C business. It's a recurring subscription-based revenue, which was the hosting business. So what you tended to find is one would prop the other one up at different times of the year. What seems like an illogical combination of businesses actually was worked out quite nicely in terms of one supporting the other. And actually, the technology being built in one business fed the other. So, for example, the tech we'd built at the events to host basically a temporary internet. So running or managing all the servers, spinning up the game server instances, uh, managing the network, all of that, we basically said, hang on a sec, this would be brilliant if we just put that online and ran the same thing online permanently. So a lot of the dev we'd done was then reused there. It's quite the growth there. And then because we grew organically, we never took big investment. It was all hand to mouth. Over the preceding years, the online business grew and went massive with the launch of Battlefield 2 in the early 2000s, then had another massive spurt when Minecraft came out about another eight years later, continued to grow. The events business grew from strength to strength. We went from Swindon Town Football Club for the Insomnia event to Newbury Racecourse, where we were there for many, many years. Luckily, we could stay there because they built another stand and we then filled that. But at one point, we filled all three stands of Newbury Racecourse. Outgrew the venue, moved to Stony Park. Then 2008, we had obviously the big issue of the um, the financial crisis. Now, for us at that point, we'd moved from just being a business to consumer event with 2,000 people bringing their PCs and playing for the weekend, and our our main revenue being the ticket price to having a bigger, bigger expo, having more and more sponsorship of the esports tournaments and of the event itself, having loads of stands. So the commercial revenue was starting to prop up the event more and more and more. 
And by the time we moved to Stonely, just before the financial crisis, basically we couldn't have run the event on the B2C revenue alone. We re- relied heavily on the B2B revenue and the, the exhibition stuff to do it. Yeah, so the 2008 crisis hit us quite hard and we had to shrink the team back down. There's the old adage of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Certainly, uh, we learned a lot in that period. We're lucky enough to secure some debt to keep us going in the meantime from under the enterprise finance uh, guarantee loan system. Circled the wagons, licked our wounds, went back to Newbury, rebuilt the business from there and, you know, came back stronger than ever before. Grew dramatically again. Eventually, we then um, moved to another venue, Telford uh, International Centre. We continued to grow there. The commercial revenue started to come back. And then onwards and upwards, we ended up at the Rico Arena, outgrew that, ended up literally putting up huge sort of circus size marquees to get the additional space we needed for burgeoning day visitors that were now coming. Because it wasn't just the people bringing their PCs by now. It was a huge exhibition. There was gaming YouTubers involved, influencers. There was social events. There was all sorts going on. It's becoming a true Glastonbury of gaming uh, in terms of if Glastonbury was a gaming festival, this is what it was. the vibe was. And then, yeah, we were just burgeoning. So in the end, I mean, I remember thinking sort of 15 years ago, what would it be like if this event ended up at the NEC? Never thought, you know, back then, could this happen? Yeah, maybe, but yes, it did. So when we got acquired by game in 2015, March 2015, one of the things, the big plans we had was, right, we've outgrown all these other venues. There are really only two venues left in the UK that we can grow at. One is the NEC and one is uh, Excel in London. Now, the problem for our event is a lot of people bring a lot of kit. We have about 3,000 people bring their own PCs in, in the, the land hall area. And then you have tens of thousands of people that come as just day visitors. There's a lot of camping involved. And we didn't feel Excel was, given its location, was that easy to get to for most of the country, especially if you're driving to it. Even just getting across London to it is a bit of a nightmare when you go to events there. And so we, we said, right, let's do the NEC. Fast forward a few years, it's one of the biggest events at the NEC. I think it's one of the biggest revenue generating events at the NEC. It happens twice a year now and has is a complete celebration of all things gaming. But uh, yeah, it's been quite the journey over, what's that, 23 years or so. <laughs> what a fantastic story. And also having that vision that if this ended up being as big as it could be, we'll end up at the NEC and then ending up at the NEC is just great. Exactly. Um, I mean, it's one of these things you sort of, when you do a fair bit of reading, you sort of go visualize, begin with the end in mind and you visualize, you know, you can dream about it enough and focus on that vision enough. Actually, you'll make it reality by your actions and your subconscious and things like that and, and getting out there and doing it. And yeah, and the same thing with the sort of the hosting side of the business. It just grew so dramatic. I remember doing our first points of presence in, in other cities. I remember working at Pier 1, where we met, <laughs> uh, when we first started using um, Pier 1 to do the US servers, and it just spiraled. We had a vision of like, how, many, how big could this be? Could this be a few million pound company? Could this be a few tens of millions pound company? What could it be? And just for me, I, it was always like, could I see a problem that needed to be fixed? I saw the market for these sorts of issues to be resolved, and I thought, as a gamer myself, Am I happy with what's out there right now? No. Right, well, let's make it better. And that's what I did with the events because I went to another event first before I started doing my own. And with online, I saw what the other people were doing for the online hosting and said, this doesn't have to be this way. Let's change this industry and, and do a better job and, and be happy that the service you're providing your customers is one you'd be prepared to use yourself. And I think that's a key ethos that's underpinned all of this over the years. Do you still go to Insomnia now? It's not I do, yeah. I mean, I still help game. 
I still help them with sort of the strategy and how to keep true to the community roots of the show. I mean, it's obviously a much larger show now. It's not just about the enthusiasts who bring their PCs from all over the country. It's about a lot of families who come to meet influencers and YouTubers and, and all this, that and the other. It's, uh, it's a true celebration. And gaming itself has gone mainstream. It's not the anoraks hunched over flickering CRT monitors in a bedroom as it was viewed 20 years ago. It's very much mainstream. As a result, the event is mainstream. Yes, so I help out. I'll be there in a, next week when the next one is over the bank holiday. I actually occasionally get to play a game at Insomnia now, and that didn't happen for 20 years. <laughs> too busy running around <laughs> doing the event. So I actually get to play a game. And it's like, this is weird. I'm sat playing a game at the event. I should be doing something. I should be running a cable. I should be fixing the server. I should be dealing with a customer problem. <laughs> you know, I should be selling someone a can of drink at the tuck shop. I should be doing any of these 100 things. And it takes a quite an adjustment to pull yourself out of that mindset. Some people sell their businesses and some people have a fantastic exit, but to still be involved in an event that was your baby is a fantastic outcome. Absolutely. I mean, I, I heard lots of horror stories when I was going through the um, process and the advice people give you is you won't be there in a year, you'll be gone, um, it'll all be changed. And, and actually, it wasn't like that for us. We worked very closely with Game. I was very aligned with the group chief exec, who was very supportive. And yeah, it, it, we really went for it. Uh, hence the event is where it is today and where the server business went today. And uh, yeah, you do hear all these horror stories. And I have to say, still today, having met many exited entrepreneurs, I can count on one hand the number that were there at the end of their run out. It just seems to be that a lot of these exits just end up with people not being there after 12 months, if that, because there's a clash of culture or things don't work out as they thought they would. Um, and ultimately, it's an emotional journey. If you build something like this, it's your baby. and if it's not handled very carefully by the acquirer, it's an emotional decision more than a logical one for a lot of people, it seems. They just go, screw this. This isn't what I signed up for. I don't care how much money is on the back end of the deal. I'm tremendously unhappy. I'm out of here. And that's just very sad to see um, happening for so many people. This is why one of the best bits of advice I got and I give to every other entrepreneur these days uh, who's going through this journey is I say, look, majority of times you're not going to be there in a year. So be very happy with what you get on day one, because anything that's in an earn out or a deferred or whatever you, you're going to get offered, that's a bonus. If the deal's not good enough that what you get on day one, you do the deal, don't do the deal is the best piece of advice I got. And I give other people still, because otherwise it's the reality of when someone takes control of your business, there's a good chance it might not go the way you wanted it to go. But I was very lucky that isn't what happened to us. I am one of those people for whom gaming has not been mainstream in my life, as you know. <laughs> and, uh, I keep and, trying. And the, but... <laughs> I, I know, I know. But the idea of people watching other people playing games, which you alluded to at the beginning, which you now say <laughs> esports is a big thing. Maybe there are some other people listening to this where they also are like me and the idea of watching other people play video games seems not what they would do on a Saturday evening. Exactly. Tell me about the sort of that evolution of esports and where the market has got to and what part you've played in that. Esports is something that kind of, I mean, it's called esports now. We never really thought of it that. I mean, it's, it's just competitions. It was something we did. I didn't actually start out doing an event. I started out getting my first modem and connection to the internet in 94, joined up to CompuServe. <laughs> People could remember that. And joined this Action Games Forum because I was a gamer. And I thought, hold on a sec, there's people here talking about playing Doom 2, dial-up. I thought, let's organize a league. 
So I just started organizing a league on there with early Excel spreadsheet, matching people up. They'd uh, dial up modem to modem at an agreed time, play a match, report back the match results, and there'd be a league. And the original first event that I did in the Hotel Ibis was basically 20 people from that league coming together to play competitive Doom 2 over LAN. And the events were necessary because you can probably remember what the latency was like back in the days of modems. But people who might not remember, you're talking about like today you'll have 20, 30 millisecond connections to London, maybe less if you've got a good connection. Back then you were lucky to get 160. So it's taking nearly a fifth of a second <laughs> round trip time, which when you're playing a fast paced shooter makes quite the difference. And so in order to have really good quality gaming, you had to go to a LAN. You had to connect up your PCs to everyone else's and play on the LAN. And uh, it started out there, really, is, is the tournaments were really a key focus of the events. It was a reason people came together. It became more of a community thing as time went on. So that was the early days of esports, was sort of dialing up the bulletin boards, dialing up to each other, joining leagues online. It evolved that way, but it was a technically challenging thing to do. So really only IT people or IT savvy people played video games competitively back then. That's obviously very different today. Over the intervening couple of decades, it went from, uh, we still continue to have lots of tournaments at Insomnia. It was very a tournament-focused event. The early days, it wasn't even for prize money. It was people got a certificate, and that was what it was for, um, which was nice. And far from where we are today, then it started to be like 50 quid for the winners, 100 quid for the winners, not the millions it is today for some of the top esports tournaments. So it's a hobby turned business. And the same is probably true from the esports. It was something that came from the community. Uh, it was never really something that the games publishers themselves were driving. It's something that happened in many cases in spite of rather than because of them. It was really difficult over many years to actually get the games to work competitively. Like It's a bit hard to organize a tournament when you can't even decide who's on what team. <laughs> so you have to try all sorts of workarounds over the years of barriers put in place, not deliberately, but by the video game developers because they never intended their games to be played in a sort of a tournament format. That's changing a lot these days. And I guess it's what was really a case of people playing competitively and then only the people watching being the people playing has transformed in the last two years. And I think what really changed it is in 2011 when a little company called Twitch came along and uh, started making uh, live streaming uh, much more accessible, much more cost effective. To give you an idea, a few years prior to that, we were streaming our tournament finals from Insomnia, but it was horrendously expensive in terms of bandwidth costs. We had to pay the bandwidth, even us as having ISP infrastructure in London. I mean, you'd be talking 10 grand of bandwidth cost potentially for streaming to a few thousand people. So the advent of companies like Twitch coming along to provide, basically provide the streaming for you. And you saw an explosion of content online and events being streamed and people streaming at home and watching players streaming. Hugh then being bought for Amazon um, a few years later for nearly a billion dollars. And I think still today, there's over 100 million monthly active uniques tuning into Twitch, if not more. Um, just to give people an idea of the numbers now, and you can see this if you look on the ascendancy graph of players in esports and the prize money and everything like that. Last year, there was over a quarter of a million people worldwide watching esports. That's still a small number. But when you look at a game such as League of Legends, which had over 30 million people tune in concurrently live to its finals, if you ranked it compared to all other sports by viewership, it would be sixth in the world. That's one game. 
So this is the sort of number to give people a bit more of an understanding of just how how huge esports actually is. And it's still in the very early stages. I mean, that sounds like a big number, 250 million people, but it's not in the scale of things. It's still, when you break it down by game and break it down by country, it's still a very early stage market. So there's lots of growth potential. I mean, total market size at the moment, if you, there's lots of different reports on this, but it will be a billion dollar market within the next couple of years, which is still tiny compared to the gaming market, which is itself 110 billion. Can you share the details around your exit? Is that public domain information? Well, it's, it is public. I mean, I can share what was public. I mean, it's, uh, it was a 20 million pound deal, some up front and some deferred, because we were bought by PLC, that was all announced to the market. What was your turnover and EBIT at the time of that 20 million pound exit? I don't think that is public. And honestly, okay. you put me, you're putting me on the spot there. <laughs> you ask, you ask me to remember what our turnover at the time was. Like the, the amount has happened in the last three and a half years. <laughs> but it was a good multiple of a EBITDA run rate. That's probably the best way to okay. describe that. <laughs> yeah, no, um, no problem. And it was certainly comparable to other, if you look at some of the market analysts comparing to other exits that happened around a similar time, like the ESL acquisition, the DreamHack acquisition, it was very similar in terms of revenue. If you looked at a low revenue multiple, um, but we actually were making, unlike many other esports businesses, we were making some good profit. So, uh, and our, our run rate was a pretty healthy EBITDA. So we're quite happy with that, as I'm sure many people would have been. So, yes. And so if you look back, what a fantastic journey. You know, you started a business from a hobby, which is, you know, people say, follow your dreams, follow your passion, turn your passion into a business. And that's something that you, <laughs> that you managed to do. Make your passion uh, your continue, profession, and, I think, is the corny line you can use yeah, on that one. <laughs> yeah. And you continue to do that with taking some of that the proceeds of that and investing that in some other gaming companies. If you went back in time, is, is there anything you would change? There's a number of things I'd probably do differently. Whilst it was great to grow organically to retain control, we could have done a lot of things quicker with outside investment. Certainly seeing it from the other side of the fence now where you can really drive companies on. And there's things that you have to do when you're growing organically that are distractions, such as me having to work in doing an IT consultancy business on the side to keep myself fed and, you know, and, and, and have some money to enjoy life with when I could have been 100% on the main business. There's things there. I mean, some of the companies I advise right now, I have this issue where I go, look, guys, you're funded. You can be focused. You don't have to go off and do this idea over here because it's going to bring some money in now. We don't care about that. We care about the idea you've sold the investment on. <laughs> That's the, one of the things funding gives you is focus um, and the ability to focus and drive on what you're doing. Um, because we did a lot of work for hire at Multiplay to, to supplement the revenues, to allow us to keep investing in the growth of insomnia, to invest in the growth of the online business. Those are all arguably distractions. It's great to do. And I probably would do some of that again. I guess the other one was the structure of the business. I mean, we basically ran a events business in, in the same vehicle as an online hosting business, which if I had my time again, I would split them from day one and run different businesses in different limited companies. Yeah, have them in a group structure and, and share the resources between them. But it's just from an administrative nightmare that happened later on in terms of splitting the businesses many years down the line it would have made a lot more sense to do that from the outset and certainly from a liability shielding perspective very different risk profiles of those two businesses in terms of one trading internationally with servers around the world the other running events where what happens if someone trips over a cable and you end up with a health and safety claim it's like that would be definitely something i'd, I'd look at again is different 
businesses in different companies would be my, my thought process next time. And you never know, that might have had a different outcome in terms of the exit because we might have just sold the events business to game and kept the digital business to be sold specifically to someone where that would have been better suited, which is ultimately what happened anyway. So, But in the end, game did well on that, didn't they? Because they, they did, they did, they absolutely. 20 million and then the digital business they sold for another 19 value yeah the same value yeah, they nearly, nearly the same value and and uh, same all the same value all cash so hindsight's one of the thing you never know it would have saved them a lot of headaches had we done that from the outset because they might well have still acquired both but then they wouldn't have had to go through the pain of separating two businesses apart and all the decade of assets being pulled between the two of them and the employees working between the two of them um they were very codependent looking forward that might be something i changed have i done it again and in terms of where you get advice or in- inspiration from i know you're a consumer of books and audio books <laughs> what what uh, if you look back on your journey i know this might be a challenging question but is there one book you think people should read one book that helped you more than anything else or you know what? that's too hard yeah. are there no, 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 it's not. I don't know three or four? Or? There's definitely three or four. Um, there's two books I wish I'd read before my 30s. I reckon when I go and talk in schools and things like that, I say, look, there is a massive gap in the national curriculum right now where we don't teach people some of this stuff. You don't get any time management training or any personal development training until you're in work. And even then, if the company, you're lucky enough to work for a company that does that sort of training, I really didn't read as prolifically as I do now until my early 30s. I think the two books that I recommend is one is is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, which a lot of which is, is a good one for anyone to start their personal development reading. And the other one is um, It Escapes Me Now, Professor Stephen Peters. God, what is he? Oh, the Chimp Paradox. There you go. Got there in the end. It's so good, I forgot it for 20 seconds. But The Chimp Paradox is more about emotional management and realizing that your brain actually is working against you because we weren't evolved to operate in the world we operate in today. And we see tigers wherever they're around every corner, whereas they're not tigers. They're just the stresses of the modern world and modern life. So I, I say to kids, if you could read this 10 years younger than I did for the first time, you would be in a much better position to take on the world than I was. I did a lot of this the hard way, but I really wish I'd started reading these sorts of books much, much earlier. And I know we often share (laughs) share lists of books to read. I'm kind of trying to make up for lost time now in terms of my my wide reading uh, around that. But if you only ever read two personal development books, those two, Seven Habits, Highly Effective People and The Chimp Paradox, those will give you a good grounding in in understanding and working better with yourself because we're all our own biggest challenges (laughs) to overcome. And what's the best book you've read today, this summer, this year? Oh, the most recent one. I see. I tried to balance. Uh, I'm trying to think. What's that? I mean, probably the one that I've read most recently that makes me think more about how the world works and the sort of challenges we've got moving forward. I'll give you one very, very a big tome. That's Capital in the 21st Century by Thomas Piketty. Understanding inequality, understanding uh, where we are economically and the challenges we're going to face, in particular in the sort of post-scarcity economy, where automation is going to be the biggest driver of job loss than anything else, and how we op- how we structure our society when the majority of people won't work because everything will be done for them by robots and automation. I think so. I'm trying to think what, what another one that would have happened recently that I, I really enjoyed. I mean, the Simon Sinek books are always very, very good. I would always recommend Start With Why and Leaders Eat Last, um, always very good books for people to read in terms of 
understanding that it matters more about why you're doing something than what you're doing. And we as humans can pick up very easily on whether you're genuinely passionate about something or just pretending. And it's far more easy to buy from someone genuinely passionate about what they're doing. Hopefully I'm a good example of that um, with all the people who came to the events and that sort of thing than it is from someone who's just doing it because they want to make a quick buck. And that's a great thing to look at of how successful companies have leveraged that by creating the right culture to sustain their businesses moving forward. But God, I could list a, a reading list of about 50. I'm stood in my study right now just looking up at my bookcase going, I could just read most of these out and each one of them is a really good book. <laughs> but I don't want to put that on people. There's a lot of good books up there. Craig, thank you very much indeed for your time today. That was Pleasure. fascinating. Thank you very much. Okay, cheers, Tom. All this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find show notes, additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening.